Welcome to the Macro Capitalist Cast, sponsored by Magi Productions. My name is Brian Ogstead, professor of economics, speaker, writer, and entrepreneur. Today's podcast is part two of Money, 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 where we will be talking about private coinage. We're going to take off where we left off from the last podcast. We're going to talk about the benefits of money, which are indivisibility and coincidental wants. Without uh, money, there can be no specialization. There can be very limited economic advancement beyond a primitive level. But once money is established, there can now be an elaborate structure of production which can be formed with land, labor, services, capital goods, all cooperating to advance the production at each stage. The great benefit, since all exchanges are made in money, there's a ratio that can be expressed in terms of money. Individuals now compare in the marketplace the worth of each good compared to every other good. For example, a TV that costs $300 an automobile, which exchanges for $30,000, we can now compare the two. There's now a ratio of one's automobiles for of the TV. So now we can compare everything in terms of a ratio. And these ratios are prices. Only the establishment of money, prices on the market, allows the development of a civilized economy for only they can permit businessmen to calculate economically. Since all prices are expressed in terms of money, businessmen can now determine if they are making a profit or a loss. These calculations can guide businessmen, laborers, landowners, etc. in search for income, in search for profit. Only such calculations can allocate resources This is important. Only such calculations can allocate resources to their most productive uses and satisfy demand. Economic textbooks will tell us that money has several functions. Medium of exchange, unit of account, store of value, measure of value, etc. But be clear, all of these functions are simply a result that money is a medium of exchange, the first one that I mentioned. We have examined how money emerged and what it does and its value. Now we're going to examine money as a monetary unit. Most tangible goods, commodities, are traded in terms of weight, like tons, pounds, ounces, grains, grams, etc. Gold is no exception. Most commodities will differ or vary in degree in quantity, But an ounce of pure gold is the same as any other ounce of pure gold. France, for example, may figure in grams, while America may figure in ounces, but units are convertible. For example, a coat may sell for one ounce of gold in America, which would be a very nice coat, be a very expensive coat, or 28.35 grams in France. And if that was true, the price of the coat would be the same. If there's a difference, it is only a difference because of other market factors. American money, dollars, and French money, francs, and German money, marks, are all, or used to be, tied to gold.
but were independent, so they were easy, and it made it easy for them to go off of gold. Yet all of these names are simply names for units of weight for gold. We could also be used for silver. The dollar began is generally applied to the name of an ounce of weight of silver coined by Bohemian Count named Schlick in the 16th century. He lived in Joachim's Valley or Joachimstol. His coins earned a great reputation for uniformity and fitness. The Count's coins came to be called Joachim's Thalers or plained Thalers. Eventually, Thalers became dollars. Before America came off the gold standard, before 1933, the dollar was one twentieth an ounce of gold and silver was one fourth an ounce of gold. Historically, the size, the name, or the shape of money would make no difference. Gold, silver, tobacco, nails, rice, or cigarettes, it would make no difference. Since the commodity is money, it follows that the entire stock of that commodity is its entirety the supply of money. It should be not surprising that the commodity can be traded in many forms, since weight is the important feature. Coins, bars, nuggets, jewelry, dust in a sack, these are all money. True that some shapes are more convenient, coins, for example, which came to be the typical form of exchange transforming nuggets to coins, bars, jewelry, etc. This costs time, effort, and various other resources. Thus, coining gold and silver is work, like any other business, and prices are set in the usual manner. The proprietor that did the best job got the business. This is known as private coinage. The idea seems so strange today because the only thing we know is government-created fiat currency. However, the concept of sovereignty in America rests with the people, not with government. How does it work? Well, just as I stated, like any other business, as Count Slick's dollars or dollars, the standard objection is to weight and measure bits of coins at every transaction. The standard objection to a commodity being used as money is weight and measures, such as gold, when they have to measure gold at every transaction to see if people are being paid in the appropriate measure. The assumption is being that we would all be carrying around different degrees of gold, some of the higher quality, some of the lesser quality. The reality is a private minter would arise that do the best work the higher quality job, and thus drive out those who are devaluing their gold, devaluing their currency. People would use coins of the minters who gained the best reputation for quality of coinage, which is precisely how the dollar came to be accepted. Another objection is, is that fraud would run rampant. Yet, those who make this argument argue for government, placing their trust there instead. But if the government cannot be trusted to catch the occasional villain in a private system, how can we trust them in a system where they have total control? In private coinage, it is pure folly to say that the government must socialize all property in order to prevent anyone from stealing property 
yet that is the argument for the abolition of private coinage. Think about it. All business is built upon guarantees of standards. For example, the drugstore sells eight ounces of medicine. You don't get nine, you don't get seven, you get eight ounces. The beef packer sells one pound of a certain quality of beef, and that's exactly what you get. You don't get 14 ounces, you don't get 18 ounces, you get one pound, 16 ounces of beef at the certain quality, the quality promised. If we don't get that quality, he is removed from the market. We, similarly, the buyer of a one-half inch bolt at Lowe's gets a one-half inch bolt, not one-fourth. Has business broken down? Do we get shorted on our medicine, shorted on our beef? Do we get shorted on bolts? No. In our economy, there are an infinite number of intricate exchanges, most depending upon definite standards of quantity and quality, yet fraud happens at a minimum. Gresham's Law states that overvalued money will drive out undervalued money. In a free market, a one-ounce coin with wear and tear is down to, let's say, nine ounces. The free market would value it as such. This would be like a silver dollar that was valued at a dollar would now be worth, let's say, 90 cents. Suppose that government decrees that all free market coins must be treated the same. What has the government done then? Well, they have done is instituted a price control on the commodity, gold or whatever it is, by coercion on the exchange rate. They have overvalued the worn coins. Then what has happened? Everyone hoards the new coins at the solid ounce and circulates and spends the worn out coins. The last privately minted gold coins were circulated in California as late as 1848. Until next time, this is Brian Ogstead, professor of economics, speaker, writer, and entrepreneur for Anacro Capitalist Cast. Thank you. Good day.